We are in Romans 3. Guess what? We have more good news. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> it's, it's Romans. There is, there is no good news, at least not for a few chapters yet. Why? Because Paul is still building a foundation. What does it include thus far? The gospel is the message of salvation. God will judge sin. Sin breaks everyone, and our, neither our goodness nor our accomplishment can save. So congratulations. There's your summary of Romans 1. And two, you're all caught up. Don't you feel better about yourself? So what will we add today? Same thing we had every week, Pinky. No, we will add a right understanding of the place of our lives in view of both the law and the righteousness of God. So in other words, in view of what the Old Testament has taught and has been instructed. Now, if we do this right, and I will make you no promises that we will do this right. I do. I give you this disclaimer every week. There should be joy in this, even as we are building the foundation and seeing what is basically Paul expounding on the bad news. Because we stand on this side of the fulfillment, we can still see the bad news as a reason for celebration, as it reminds us of the good news that has been accomplished. So, sound like fun? Oh, that's not a good sign. You know it doesn't matter, right? Because you know what the rule is. If nobody else has fun on a Sunday morning, I do, and that's all that matters. So, let's dive right in, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? See, if you have not read chapter 2, you have no idea why in the world Paul would be asking those two questions. I'll help you out with the reminder. Based on what we covered last week, the advantage is neither godliness or salvation in and of itself. You don't get to flop down onto the scene and be like, Hey, I'm a child of Abraham. I get to be in the kingdom. Why? Because I'm a child of Abraham. Could you imagine, you know, you get up to the pearly gates and there's Peter sitting there because that's how all the bad jokes are written. That's how that works. And you say what? I'm getting in. Why? Because Abraham is my great, 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 grandfather. So, like, what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? Seriously. I don't get to, I should, oh, that would be so good if that works. Like, I should be able to go to Washington to be like, I should be allowed to make decisions because my great, 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 great grandfather signed the Declaration of Independence. I'm more important than you are. Give me that. Could I do worse? Be honest. Okay, just making sure. <laughs> Some of you are like, well, you know, I appreciate your confidence. Now, what advantage is the Jew? It's not salvation. This is what Paul was talking about last week. Romans 2. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Do me a favor. That verse, well, those two verses, just file those in the back of your brain. We are coming back to them shortly, and I don't want to have to read them again. So just kind of make sure they don't, don't let those spin out of the Rolodex real fast, okay? And by the way, that's also not a new idea from Paul. He mentioned it almost a half a decade earlier in his first letter to anyone, Galatians 3. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So being Jewish doesn't just get you a one-way ticket straight past the pearly gates. So who cares if you're Jewish or not? That's the question. The answer is in verse 2. Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. This is actually a big deal. God chose those people to bear his word, just not for the reasons that they thought. And by the way, this is a warning. This is the reminder from Ecclesiastes. Remember going all the way back to Ecclesiastes. I know it was so long ago, you guys will never remember. But Solomon gave you this disclaimer. And remember the rules of Ecclesiastes, that Ecclesiastes is always in effect because humanity hasn't changed and our brokenness hasn't changed and logic hasn't changed. Therefore, the stuff from 3,000 years ago that made sense still makes sense today. You just have to figure it out with an iPhone instead of a scroll, but that's okay. With wisdom comes pain. Why? Because the more you know, the more you realize, one, you realize what you don't know, and two, you realize... Just how many people don't know and just how broken things actually are. The more you learn about the world, the more you realize that people aren't making decisions based upon wisdom and knowledge in the world. That most people are making decisions selfishly for whose benefit? Their own. Their own. I mean, this is, this is weird. 
talking about this in Sunday school, nothing new under the sun. You had Roman tax collectors buying the opportunity to gouge you for taxes so that they could get rich. You fast forward to the early and middle ages and you have what? You have church officials buying their offices so they can do what? Gouge the people so they can get taxes so they can get rich. You have people now setting up donors and trying to get elected to public office so they can do what? <laughs> Gee, it's almost like you rewind two, 3,000 years and people are still worried about themselves in every respect. And this is what Israel did. We have received the oracles of God. We have received the messages of the prophets. We have received the law. You know what that means, don't you? It means we're special. We're special and you're not. Nah, 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 nah. That was kind of the Israelite view. What was Jesus' warning? Matthew 23. Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. Once again, look at me. I'm special. I have the authority of Moses. I get to tell you people what to do. Nah, 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 nah. You don't. Now, the saddest part about all of this, it should have never been that way. Go all the way back to the birth of this nation. Well, not all the way back. You have to go all the way back and then fast forward about 40 years, and you get Moses' speech in Deuteronomy. Moses' last word to the nation before they're going to enter into the promised land. One of my favorite verses, this little nugget in Deuteronomy 7. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See, let me translate that to the modern world. In, in Moses' day, to have a lot of people would to be blessed from God. Your nation is prosperous. Your nation is numerous. Therefore, God has blessed your nation because that's what a good, strong nation looks like. It looks like lots of people so that you can rule over your land and you can conquer your enemies and you have so many people that you cannot be overthrown. That's a blessing from God. Conversely, then, to not have a lot of people would be seen as what? What's the opposite of blessing from God? Yeah. This is Moses' way of going, you people were useless. <laughs> there were so few of you, you shouldn't have even been worth saving. And yet... God remembered his promises. God remembered what he was doing, and God remembered the work that he was doing through you, and he worked in you despite the fact that you were not great, despite the fact that you were not noble, despite the fact that you were not noteworthy. God worked in you anyway. You were supposed to have a humble beginning because you were supposed to have a humble life because you're supposed to have a humble end. All praise going to who? God and not yourself. Now, that's how they should have seen it. They didn't. And the real danger, which, by the way, was a danger for them and is still a danger from you, this puts you in a privileged and a dangerous place. So privilege, one, Deuteronomy 4. What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord, our God, whenever we call on him? Our, or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law, which I am setting before you today? Christian, you could make the same statement. What other people has God so near to them that he has indwelt them, that he guides them, that he carries them through their great times, he carries them through their darkest times, that he has instructed them how to live, that he has endowed with salvation, he is entrusted with sanctification, and he is carrying through to a glorious end. Ooh, I'm feeling better about myself already, aren't I? It's also a dangerous place. James 3. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. That verse doesn't just apply to me. You got friends? You got family? You got kids? You got grandkids? You got nephews? You got people that you're discipling? Congratulations, you're a teacher. <laughs> but, 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 but. Be careful. Slow down. Operate in wisdom. Here, as someone who has intentionally stepped into this role, let me give you the greatest phrase you should, be, you should always have at the ready when someone asks you questions about your faith, about scripture, or about the general things of the world, and you have a doubt. I'm not sure, but <laughs> I can find out. I can look it up. We'll look into that. 
Ah, you know where we get ourselves in so much trouble? We're so certain and dogmatic about what? Everything. <sighs> a little humility. A little willingness to say, let me look. Let me read. Let me think about it. We actually, we actually got to laugh about that on Wednesday going through some of the church history stuff because there's a... Um, there's disciples of a, a guy by the name of uh, Jacobus Arminius, and they come, come up with their, their five points of theology. And I love that they submitted this for review by the church at large. And, and on the fifth point, they're like, you know, we're not real sure about this one. We're going to believe it, but we're not sure, and we want people to look into it some more. And I go, well, then, you know, you should probably have four points then. But <laughs> at the same token, I give them a little bit of a credit, like gold star, because they're humble enough to say, we're not sure, and we're not going to be dogmatic about things we're not sure about. Like, have you ever met color-coded rapture chart person? They're really, really sure about what? About everything. And it's one of the, one of the theologies that I go, okay, here's what I think, here's what I believe, here's why I believe it, but <laughs> this is one of those places you want to disagree with me on eschatology, you know what, you're, you know what I'm going to say? God bless you, because there's a really good possibility I'm going to get there and go, so that was the right one. Because realize that really, really smart people have gone with uh, premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial. There's two different types of postmillennial. There's like three different types of premillennial. And amongst premillennial, when you get into the subtypes, there's like different types of those. So all in all, there's like eight or nine different ways to look at eschatology. Other than that, we nailed it. <laughs> I mean, I have books on this. And I read them and go, that's a good point. Until you read the next and go, you know, that's a really good point. Then you read the next and go, that's a really good point. <sighs> Pick one, go with it, defend it to the death, just recognize you're probably wrong. Because <laughs> out of nine possibilities, I mean, be honest, what are the odds? What are the odds you pick the good one? <laughs> you know, with my luck, I got the most wrong one possible, and I can defend it to that tilt, but yeah, I give up. <laughs> this is what we do. A little humility saves you from the warnings of teaching, because you can sit there and say, I know this. I don't know that. We will learn. We will study. Because you know what happens then? If I'm not really sure, you know where we have to go? We have to go back to the source. And you know who will be blessed by actually sitting down and reading the word that God has given to us? Everybody. Everybody. So sit down, read it, and go, there's my answer. Because you know what happens when you do it that way? You'll know. You'll remember that because you looked it up and you dug into it and you took your time. This is the life you're supposed to live. Cautious, careful, trusting in the spirit, trusting in the wisdom, and be certain about the things that you know and stand upon the good foundation that is Christ. And if you're not sure, build up that foundation and you will be strengthened for the world. This is part of the lesson of Israel's history. They didn't do that. And they stood on the shifting sand and went, we are amazing. Why are we sinking? Oh, it's, we're not sinking. The world is just rising around us. We're so wonderful. We'll be fine. Why is it deeper? I don't know. We're fine. I mean, it's lunacy. You should have looked at that situation and said what? You know, maybe we should climb out of this pit just a little bit, build this up, fill it in, you know, drop a couple of cinder blocks in there. And then when we've got something solid, then we'll stand firm and actually be able to deal with the world. That's the Christian walk and the Christian calling. Verse three. What then? So the Jews have this great privilege, right? What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? All right, let me, let me phrase this in a way that makes a little bit more sense, because this is a hard argument from Paul, but it's, it's a worthwhile argument. Does Israel's disbelief render God powerless? That's easy, right? The answer is no. There is nothing that renders God powerless, which, by the way, let me just cover this real fast. Can God make a rock so heavy that he can't lift it? Huh? Huh? You Christians think you're so smart? Okay. Someone ever gives you that one, go, no, because that's stupid. Because it's a stupid question. It is. If you don't want to say it like that, you can be polite and say that's a non-logical question, but it kind of loses something in the translation there. Um, God is how strong? God is infinitely strong. A rock is what kind of thing? A finite thing. It is limited. Can a finite thing be infinitely heavy? No, therefore it is a nonsensical question. You're asking if a finite created thing can be infinitely heavy. The question makes no sense. It's like, well, if God's so great, can he make a square circle? No, because circles aren't squares and squares aren't circles. Therefore, the question doesn't make any sense. You're welcome. That has nothing to do with anything else. It's just whenever something like that comes up, I feel the need to share because it's one of those things you get tied up in and not trying to think about it and go, wait a minute. Again, what's your foundation? Common sense. Common sense should be part of your foundation. 
Moving back. So, does Israel's unbelief render God powerless? No. So, how then does God bless an evil Israel? So we have an Israel that has received the law, received the promises, but has basically lived as if they haven't received the law and have not received the promises. How does God bless such a people? This is the conundrum that is being brought in here. And the answer is 1 Kings 19. I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. In other words, what was Israel? In their faithless days of the judges, in their faithless days of the kings, in their faithless days of the prophets. Are you sensing a pattern here with Israel as a whole? Israel as a whole is faithless. Does that mean every single solitary Israelite in the kingdom was faithless? No. So who is Israel? Israel is the remnant. Now, Christian, remember I told you to put that verse in the back of your head? This is why. Who is Israel now? The remnant. The remnant of who? Believers. You're an heir of Abraham as you have trusted in Christ. You are a recipient of the promise. As the Jews trust in Christ, they are descendants of Abraham. They are a part of the remnant. There aren't multiple salvations here. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That was what Jesus claimed, John 14. There's not like a third way in or, you know, like you, I have the key to the back gate. Ha ha. Peter's not guarding that one. Look at me. (laughs) That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. How many roads? Not being, remember in your world, how many roads in the world? Two, there is the broad road that leads to destruction and the narrow way that leads to life. And on those roads, there are how many gates? There's a wide gate on the wide road and there's a narrow gate on the narrow road. I I come back to this on occasion. If you haven't read it yet, for shame. Hang on, disappointed dad look. Okay, if you have read it, that wasn't for you. Find, a, find an edited version and read Pilgrim's Progress. Updated language, it's great for you because he illustrates this. Bunyan illustrates this so beautifully. Christian is traveling along the road having gone through the narrow gate and he sees somebody in the road and be like, ooh, a fellow traveler. Did you two come in by the narrow gate? And they're like, no, 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 no. We found a shortcut through the woods. Uh-oh. <laughs> Yeah, uh-oh. Guess, guess who doesn't make it to the end? Yeah, the guys with the shortcut through the woods don't make it to the end. It's an illustration of what? You must enter in through Christ. This has been true for humanity from the very beginning. Abraham is there not because God went, ooh, there's a good guy right there. No, you're told he's an idolater. Abraham makes it because he is of the faithful. He is the father of the faithful. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's what Genesis 15 tells you. This is what Isaiah 55 warns you about. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. This is part of the lesson of Israel. You could see Israel. There were good kings and there were bad kings. There were faithful kings and there were faithless kings. And in the midst of that, some of the people were good and some of the people weren't. And when you had a really, really good king, you sometimes had really, really bad people. And when you had a really, really bad king, you sometimes had some really, really good people. Always remember Elijah is the one who's given this promise in 1 Kings 19. Who was king in the northern kingdom of Israel during Elijah's ministry? Ahab. In case you're ever wondering, there's basically two comparisons in the book of Kings and Chronicles. You're either compared to being like your father David, which is a good thing, trusting in God, or you're compared to your father Ahab. That's a bad thing. Because Ahab does not follow after God. He becomes the prototype of the wicked kings of Israel. You don't want to be like Ahab. His wife's name was Jezebel for crying out loud. It's only been 3,000 years and her name is still an insult. I mean, how bad do you have to be for your name to be an insult for three millennia? I mean, imagine imagine your name in 5,000 is is, is an insult to everybody. You'd be like, okay, it's been a few years. Can we let it go? And the answer is no, she was that bad. So that's what Paul is trying to introduce here. Does that faithlessness of the majority of Israel mean that God is not fulfilling his problems? No, why not? Because if you think he has and if you think he cannot save, then you have misunderstood what it means to be Israel. You're not Israel just because you're a descendant of Abraham. You're Israel because you're a descendant of faith. So he continues verse 4. May it never be. 
Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So, we agree with Paul. Judgment comes upon who? Those who are outside of faith. And by the way, always notice Anytime you see those capital words like that in your New Testament, that means they are quoting something from the Old Testament. This is not something Paul has just pulled out of thin air. Hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sit around and redefine what it means to be Israel and sit around and redefine salvation. No, he is building upon the word that God has laid down before. Things like Psalm 32. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Notice it's not how blessed is the man who got everything right. How blessed is the man who never found himself in any sin whatsoever. It's how blessed is the man who is forgiven of God. What's the problem with David? Remember, David's the good king. David is the prototype of the good king. Um, Parents, would you like your daughters to grow up to marry a man like David? Just out of morbid, just out of morbid curiosity. Yeah, a few of you moms went, wait a minute. Because... <laughs> See, because you're moral, upright people, right? So you didn't sit there and go, ooh, he's rich and he's a king and he's probably tall and handsome. You went, wait a minute, he's married like 18 times and he's getting people killed and he's cheating on her. And you know, I have questions. You should. He's the same guy who wrote this. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. That's the prototype of the good kings. Why? Because he was so perfect and got everything right. No. Because his salvation was in God and his foundation was built upon his trust in the promises that God had given. And by the way, always remember the types of people that God saves. So let's play trivia time. I don't, don't, don't look at the back of your bulletin for this. If you have not looked ahead yet, don't, don't, don't do it. Don't do it. Guess who this is? I called out in my distress to the Lord and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of the grave, and you heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. And I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought me up from, up from my life from the pit. O oh Lord my God, while I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanks giving. That which I have vowed I will pay, salvation is from the Lord. Who knows? It's the prayer of Jonah. Jonah, go to Nineveh. No, Nineveh's that way. I know. Fine, you don't want to go to Nineveh? I'll have a storm stop your boat. Okay, you can toss me into the ocean. I'd rather die than go to Nineveh. I made a mistake. I was wrong. I'm sorry. And God saves him. This is the reminder of your Old Testament. This is the work of God in salvation, not just in the new, but from the very beginning. This is what Paul is trying to make sure you get in your questions. Yes, there is benefit. There is privilege to being the people that know the law, that know the scripture, that have the history. There may be danger, but remember... That just because you're born into the family that knows the Bible doesn't mean you know the Bible. At the end of the day, salvation is because of your trust built upon the foundation that you have in God. This is the warning, and this is what Paul has been trying to get across and will get across. Because who does that lesson apply to? Who does sin corrupt chapter 1 again? Everyone. What's the cure chapter 2? The work of Christ in Christ alone. That's also chapter 1. So make sure you're building upon the foundation. That's why Paul will continue. Verse 5. 
But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? So, hang on, I'll just keep reading. Hang on. The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm, I'm speaking in human terms. That's in parentheses because Paul's writing this still. Now, let's just cover this. Based on what he just said, doesn't that mean that Israel's faithlessness makes the faithfulness of those faithful Israelites shine all the brighter? I mean, when does, when does the light shine the brightest? Like, if I turned a flashlight on in this room right now, what good would it do us? Now, if it was midnight, and there was a lunar eclipse, and all the lights were off, and then I shined a flashlight, how useful is it? See, now you're like, ooh, thank you. It's one of those quirks if you ever... Um, I watch weird survival stuff on occasion just because I'm odd. And you, yeah, I, well, you didn't know I was weird, did you? Um, the human eye can pick up campfire light up to 10 miles away. You're out on a dark night, cloudy night, you can see campfires from 10 miles and beyond. Always makes me wonder about those, about back in the settler days, like when people are out settling in Wyoming and the, or the plains in Iowa and you're there for days and days. And like, I'm going to town and town is, you know, like 100 miles. You can't walk that in a day. So like dad leaves and like you can watch him leave for like the rest of the afternoon. And they'd be like, oh, look, kids, there's dad's campfire because you can still see it in the darkness. I always wonder about stuff like that. But why can you see a fire like that on a dark night? Because there's nothing else out there. Nothing else there, so you can see it forever. So if everybody is evil and I am decent, doesn't that make it even better? And doesn't that make their evil also good? <laughs> because it makes my goodness shine even the brighter? That's the question Paul's asking, because this is the human question, isn't it? This is the problem we have. And by the way, we're going to come back to this idea because it's going to come up again because people are going to ask this question. I mean, for crying out loud, we did this. You're still doing this today. Grace may abound so that we'll do whatever. And this is how we live. There are still libertines to this very day. Let's fast forward to a book Paul writes later on, Ephesians 5, because it summarizes this quite easily. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. That's a little straightforward, isn't it? I mean, when in doubt, just remember Ephesians 5.11. No, don't live like that. Shine the light. That should be the simple answer. And again, this has to be addressed because humanity, in its sinfulness, would never co-op the grace of God for their own benefit. We would, sweet little old angels like us, we would never do anything like that. You realize most of humanity that claims to have the halo, it's because it's being held up by one of the horns, right? <laughs> Again, what is true of humanity? Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. That was Paul describing his world. It's Paul describing Solomon's world. It's Paul describing Abraham's world. It's Paul describing our world. It's Paul describing every world until Jesus comes back. Because that's what humanity does. So then you tell them, but there is a God in heaven who gives grace and mercy. Humanity would never go, ooh, how can I use that? <laughs> Hence the reason why you have to answer the question. What's the answer? Verse 6. May it never be, for otherwise how will God judge the world? I mean, this is one of those does right there. You can't claim unrighteousness is righteousness. To claim unrighteousness is righteousness is like asking if God can make a square circle. It doesn't make any sense. Hey, hey, isn't there some sort of way that this evil is actually good? The answer is no. And you may be thinking to yourself, but, 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 but what about like places that hint at that? You know, when, when, um, when Joseph says what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Just because God was able to use the evil act of the brothers and they're selling him into slavery does not mean that you're, doesn't mean you're supposed to sell your brother into slavery. Okay, kids? <laughs> Don't sell your brother. That would be bad. <laughs> Becca's like, are you paying attention? <laughs> Levi would, wouldn't he? Levi would negotiate a price for one of them. <laughs> you, like, you don't like this one. How about this one? <laughs> They're spares. <laughs> we have extra. 
<laughs> yeah, don't sell your siblings, kids. That's frowned upon. Like, and, that's, and the fact that you laugh at that is because you know what? You know, selling my brother into slavery and then telling our father that he died so that he's not the favorite anymore, you just, something in you just goes, you know, that's probably bad. And, and I probably shouldn't have done that. No, just because God hits a straight shot with a crooked stick doesn't make the crooked stick good. That's why golf is evil, kids, okay? <laughs> Just had to throw that in there. And again, this is also an idea built upon the entirety of the history of Israel. Genesis 18, this was Abraham's question again. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked be treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And the answer is yes. Why? Things like Numbers 14. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation. Psalm 58. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, and men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. See, it's one of those things that we've lost in Christianity, and I'm not sure it's to our benefit. How many of you would read that at a public prayer breakfast? Like, seriously, how many of you would be invited to, we're having our annual town Christmas parade, and we'd like you to read a scripture. I got this. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, and men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Everybody be standing there with their little Christmas hats on going, little candy canes like, I don't think we should have this one back. Why not, though? And I'm serious about this. I'm not telling you to read this at Christmas, but I'm asking a legitimate question. Why don't we read that? You know Psalms are filled with some of that imagery. You know the Old Testament is filled with that. What was the celebratory song of Moses and the women in, in Exodus 15? That, the, that, the, that the, um, the Egyptians were drowned in the sea. They were crushed upon the rocks. Could you imagine showing up to church on a Sunday morning? And the enemies of God were drowned in the water, drowned in the water, drowned in the water. <laughs> You'd be like, kids, get back in the car. <laughs> Why aren't we comfortable with that anymore? Because that's not nice. In Christian, what are you supposed to be in the world? You're supposed to be nice. No, you're not. You're supposed to be loving. If I see something that is iniquity in you and it is leading you to hell, the least loving thing I can do is tell you it's okay and let you continue on with it. The least loving thing I can do is look at the sin of the world and go, it'll be fine. Just leave it alone. It'll be fine. The most loving thing I can do is warn you. But that's not nice. You have to understand what foundation you stand upon who you serve, and what you are attempting to accomplish in the world. And remember the warning that Jesus gave you. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For who will be turned against who? And I know some of you deal with this. Some of you have this in your own families. But you've been warned, fathers against children, in-laws. That one wasn't really a shock, was it? Mother-in-law will be turned against daughter-in-law. You know, the disciples were like, duh. <laughs> have you met people this week? <laughs> Why there, though? Because if you're going to stand for Christ, you're going to stand in the most uncomfortable places. You're going to have the most uncomfortable arguments because you're going to be trying to explain the works of the gospel to the people you care about the most because who do you want to hear it? Them, because you actually like them. You're more likely to let the person you don't like that you don't even know go. And that will cause division and that will cause problems. And Christian, that's okay. You have to stand on the right foundation. You have to stand for the truth as God has given it because that is the only truth that is actually applicable in the world. And this is coming. This is the reality. We do ourselves a disservice when we go, no, 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 no. I'm going to forget about the judgment. I'm forget about the, the shedding of blood and the washing of feet thing. No, 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 no. That's the reality of the judgment of God. It's meant to be terrifying. Where do you walk, Christian? What's the funeral psalm? Come on, who, you know the King James, right? Because everybody, even if you've never read it, knows the King James. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Where do you walk? 
Where do you exist? We read that at funerals because, oh, look, look, it mentioned death. That makes it a funeral verse. The valley of the shadow of death isn't just your valley. It's the valley. It's the world out there, the Romans one world that you inhabit day in and day out. Why are we afraid? We're afraid because we think they have more power than God. And I know you don't say that out loud, and I know you don't think like that out loud, but when we sit there and say, no, 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 that's not the part of the Bible we're actually going to read. What you're actually saying is I'm more worried about what they think than what God has said. You don't think it out loud, but that's subconsciously what you're doing. Rest in the right places. Build your foundation on the entirety of the counsel of God, on all he has given. And then know that it is he who holds you and carries you forward. And by the way, fun question would be, is Paul consistent on this? Philippians 1. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. See, Paul will trust God to judge. You're preaching Christ, and you're doing it because you want the gospel to spread. Paul rejoices that you're preaching Christ. You're preaching Christ because you want people to think you're a good teacher and give you praise. Paul rejoices because you're preaching Christ. You know who will sort out your heart? God will. Christian, this is how you have to live in the world. Verse 7. But... If through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? Same question. The exact same question, just phrased differently. Because again, humanity would never corrupt the grace and mercy of God for their own devices. Now, by the way, pick me. I can answer this one. This comes back to your foundational answers. Understanding that when you enter out into the world, you are not... okay. You're not having a battle about the tax rate. You're not having a battle about whether or not someone should be allowed to do something in the privacy of their own home. What you're supposed to be having a battle about is the definitions and understandings of what is actual moral behavior and good for a society at large. That's the argument you're supposed to be having. We don't have that argument because we try to be nice and we go, well, no, 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 you shouldn't because it's not good. and It's wrong. Because God has defined it as wrong. Therefore, (laughs) follow me here, when God says this is right, and God says this is wrong, and you do this, it's wrong. (laughs) Now, when you do this, it's right. I mean, I've told you this about politicians. This should be your attitude with every politician. If you like the politician, and they do something dumb, you know what you should say? That's dumb. Don't do that. If you don't like a politician and they do something that is good, you know what you should say? That's good. Do it again. I still don't like you, but that's good. Do it again. Because in that then, you are now standing on a foundation that is above the fray, outside of the system of the world. The world wants nothing more than to just drag you into everything that they are about and everything that they do. Because when you get into the mud with the pigs, who gets dirty? Everyone. Everyone. You're supposed to stand on the outside and go, hey, there's a, there's a gate right there. And if you would just walk this way, you too can get out of the mud. Bigot. <laughs> okay. Have fun with that. Hey, hey, we're not talking to them anymore. You, you, you see that gate right there? If you would, you think I'm a bigot too. Okay, fine. This is your life. This is the lot that you have been given. The worst thing we do is we get in and go, okay, see, I'm just as dirty as you are now, and I know that if you and I will walk together, we will get... This is dumb. You don't wallow in their sin. You don't wallow in their system. You stand outside and stand upon Christ and rest in him and him alone. So, yes, I can answer this question because God has to act in accordance with his character and nature. Part of my foundation begins with who is God? Just judge of all the earth, Genesis 18, that we just read. Holy and righteous who forgives iniquity, but will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So yes, the lie of Israel and the lie of some Israelites has demonstrated the mercy of God as he has saved those who didn't walk in that evil manner. So why are you being judged? Because you're still standing in sin. And who do, what do we know is true about God? Isaiah 6. 
In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And by the way, that holiness is apparent whenever God shows up. Whenever God shows up. Here in, well, not here, but Isaiah 6, it's obvious. Because what does Isaiah say? What's Isaiah's very next line? Woe is me. That's not because he's riding a horse. I am an unclean man. And I live amongst an unclean people. Go back to Israel. My favorite example in all of history is Israel at Mount Sinai. They all walk to the mountain and God comes down and there's the cloud and the lightning and the shaking and the thundering and God speaks and the whole world shakes. And then he says, don't anyone come up the mountain. And everybody in Israel says, duh. <laughs> like, I did not need to be told that. We're good right here. We didn't want to come up the mountain anyway. <laughs> you know, Moses is stationing guards for the, like, the most boring job in history. Like, guard the mountain so no one comes up. The guard's like, who would be dumb enough to walk past me? Like, I don't want to be this close. <laughs> if anybody walks up, I'm going to let them. <laughs> I'm not stopping them. You're insane. God shows up to John on the island of Patmos. John, who saw the transfigured Christ, John, who saw the glory in the resurrection, sees Jesus standing there and falls on his face like a dead man. Ezekiel sees God, sees the glory of the throne of God hovering above the earth and falls down like a dead man. Someone has to tap and be like, hey, you can get up now. No, 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 I'm good. I'm good, bro. I'm gonna be right here. Peter sees God create fish or know where the fish are and says what? Go away from me for I am a sinful man. Jesus speaks to his creation, calms the storm. The disciples are what? Afraid. So there's one of those. Give me me a DeLorean for five minutes. That's like top five of the list. I want to know what that sounded like. Because I hate the way it's always portrayed in Bible shows and things. It's always like Jesus waking up, you know, all sleepy-eyed, be like, why do you have such little faith? Hush, be still. Because Jesus' hair is now flowing in the wind like it's a romance novel from the 90s, you know, like... Be still, great conditioner in Israel in 30 BC or 30 AD. I want to know what it sounded like when God commanded his creation. I guarantee you there's a reason why fishermen were afraid. Because <laughs> keep in mind, fishermen who fish for a living on a lake that you can see the other side of, we're going to be capsized and drowned. Dude, you can swim it. And then he spoke and they're still terrified. I want to know what that sounded like. Because every time God shows up, people are afraid. Christian, why aren't you afraid anymore? Because of the mercy and the grace of God. That judgment is not on me because of where I stand in Christ. Not because of my goodness, but because of the goodness of Christ. And as I live, turning from my sin and trusting in him each and every day, I know that judgment has passed over to me, just like it did for Israel in that day. And I know that I am secure. Therefore, I am not afraid. But you, world, who live in your sin, should be. That's the answer. And we can trust in that because God has been consistent from beginning to end. Go back to things like Genesis 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God has promised. God will redeem his people. So in the midst of a flood, be honest, you want to get on a boat that you made with your own bare hands that's about the size of a football field and survive a year-long flood? Does that sound like a good plan to you? Be like, I don't trust my shed. (laughs) I'm not sure I'm sailing. You know, I, I am not sticks here. We are not sailing away. This is a bad, bad plan. Some of you are singing that song in your heads right now, and you are welcome. You have Dennis DeYoung in the back of your brain. I'm sailing away. <laughs> I don't know. Why does he sound so nasally? Has anybody ever figured that out? Like, how does that band get together? You like have a theater kid on one side and a bunch of rock guys on the other. Anyway, it doesn't matter anything. You don't want that plan. Noah doesn't want that plan. That's the plan. Who makes it work? God does. This is what he does. This is who he is. This is why you can be secure in this world. Because if there is a way to save his people, God will save his people. And God has decided to save his people, therefore there is a way. And it is demonstrated throughout scripture. Fast forward to the end of the book, Revelation 20. 
I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. By the way, Christian, that's good news for you. Because you're in Christ supposed to be the ending of John 3. You're supposed to be the ones that are not afraid of the light because your deeds are wrought in the light. Therefore, open the books. Yes, there's a lot of stuff I'm not proud of. But open that book of life, please. And as my name is written in there, none of that stuff matters. None of it matters. You can skip all of that because my name's in that one. Open the books, read from them, and I am good. That's what's supposed to be. That's supposed to be your heart. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and the grave gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, each of them, according to their deeds. And death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There's another verse nobody's reading at Christmas because we don't want to be reminded of the realities of life. But Christian, you should be mindful of them each and every day. You have been rescued from something. Gee, Christian, how should you remember this? I don't know. What has Christ actually rescued me from? Judgment. (laughs) He He hasn't rescued me from oops or from my bad decisions. He has rescued me from hell. From the judgment of God, the everlasting wrath of the almighty king and creator of all things used to be mad at me, and that's not good. (laughs) Which, again, probably put that at the top of the list of dumb things I'll say today. God being mad at you is not good. But now, in Christ, he is no longer angry, and I am good because of what he has accomplished and what he has given to me. So, long way of saying this. Christian, in Christ, the ends never justify the means. Ever, never Without ends, the ends do not justify the means because in Christ, the ends are not the means. The means are the ends. How you live, what you're doing, why you're doing it is the point. You don't get to go, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm doing this bad thing, but I'm doing it for a really good reason. You just found your sin area, the bad thing. There's no good reason. The ends can't be justified by the means. The means are the point of your goal, of your existence. They are the goal of what you're doing day by day. That's why the prayer is in the psalm. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. doesn't say, you know, abandon me most of the time and I'll figure it out. It's search me and know my heart. You want to be led all the time. Verse 8. And why not say... As we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Ooh, why would people say that about Paul? If you can't answer that question, by the way, by this point of the sermon, um, just go listen to it all again tomorrow. (laughs) There's no hope for you now. I'm not going to repeat everything I've said. So I want to focus on that little parentheses part. Why in the world would they report that Paul says this? Let us do evil that good may come. Galatians chapter 2. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, but since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Paul is going around teaching what? Salvation is because of your good keeping of the law, right? No, he's going around teaching that salvation is by grace through faith because of the completed work of Christ. Now, if you're a good Jew, you're going, that's blasphemy. That's heresy. You must teach these people what they must do and how they must live in order that they may be saved. Therefore, they think Paul is teaching this. Let us do evil that good may come. Notice Paul has never condemned God's law. He's condemned just like Jesus what? people's understandings of it and applications of it. It's the same problem from the very beginning. Matthew 17. This was Jesus telling the crowds, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is part of Paul's answer. You don't get to just live however and say it'll all work out because Jesus loves me. You actually seek to root out sin in every avenue of your life, in every aspect of it. Why? Because Jesus loves me. 
because he has died for me and he has removed the stain and the iniquity. Therefore, how can I still wallow in it? It's like, imagine, go back to our pig pen analogy. Imagine someone pulling you out of that, cleaning you up, giving you new clothes, and you're going, but you know, it was warm. <laughs> you'd be standing around if someone said that, you'd be like, I don't even know what to do with that. That doesn't make any sense. That's sanctification. That's the process that you walk. You're not being cleaned up so that God will love you. You have been cleaned up because God has already placed his love upon you. You've got, it's like when your parents bought you new shoes. You want, to go, you want to run through the mud puddles and then come home and explain to your parents your new shoes are now muddy? <laughs> if you were like me and you got like a new pair like twice a year when you outgrew them at best, be like, no, 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 they're fine, they're fine. They will rot off my feet before I tell you I did anything dumb with these. That's your sanctification. The difference is you can't hide it. God knows, you know. Now put it to death because that's what goes on. Paul simply understands the Old Testament law rightly. Hence the reason why, again, Galatians 3. As many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now, that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. The righteous man shall live by faith. The law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. They report this about Paul because Paul has condemned their system. Paul has condemned their standards of righteousness. Paul has upheld God's. Because God's standard has never changed. God's standard has been the same from the very beginning. They just don't like it because they don't get any credit. This is part of your answer when the world looks at you and goes, well, why does it matter? If Jesus died, isn't sin covered? Yes, but what's your foundation? What is your life built upon? What are you living for? What are you seeking after day by day? And that's why he finishes up right here. Their condemnation is just. That's where Paul stops, at least for this section, because that's where we stop. He stands with God in his judgment. Why? Go all the way back to Ecclesiastes, one of my favorite verses. The conclusion when all has been heard is this. Fear God. Keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Just remember what side of the scale you stand on in Christ. I'll actually read John 3. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. This is where you stand in Christ, Christian. You stand as a living sacrifice, a testimony to his goodness, his gracious mercy. Therefore, you actually care about your world. You sit there and call what is clean and what is unclean. You actually know what is right and try to stand there. Notice the word I use there. Try. You're going to fail. I'm going to fail. And we do what? Well, I messed up. Might as well just keep wallowing in the mud. There's no point now. You know where the gate is. What should you do? Now get out, clean yourself off, know that Christ has died for this sin too, and live accordingly. Live for his glory, live for his honor, build on the foundation, and trust that it is him who will carry you to the end, because that is what he has promised. Let's pray.